My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dawn. My guest today is Nabil Lauji. Nabil is a serial entrepreneur who's worked on more than a half dozen projects ranging from storytelling and politics, health and wellness, aging, technology, even religion. He's also been a senior consultant with Booz Allen Hamilton, a principal at Envision App, and he has his MBA from MIT Sloan, which is where we met. We were both in graduate school at the time. Right now, he's working on a vision called Solve Reality, which is exploring how we can tap emerging technology like advanced artificial general intelligence and quantum computing to really get at what is going on in our universe and how can we leverage that understanding to actually evolve as a species. We have a wide-ranging conversation about what it is to be a global citizen, to live in a world that spans religion and culture and ideas, and how to bring people together from a place of love and compassion and empathy. I think you're really going to love this one. So here we go. Nabil Oji. How are you, my friends? I'm doing all right, my brother. Uh, Man, I'm so pleased to have you here today. I really can't express enough what a treat it's been to be in journey with you over the past several years since we met in graduate school. And folks will get a, a full download of who you are and what you're up to in the introduction. But I encounter you as this really restless thinker who's always asking big questions and always playing with how to integrate two sides of an equation. And that might be in the political spectrum, that might be in the entrepreneurial space, that might be in kind of the philosophical place. You're always someone who I encounter as standing at these intersections, trying to bring ideas and people and possibilities together. And I'm hoping we can explore and play in that space in the conversation today. Yeah. Well, very welcome, man. Thank you, brother. And thanks for being on this journey with me. I know uh, when we started off about, what, 10 years ago now, almost? Oh, my God. How is that possible? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I was scheming up some uh, storytelling projects. You were right there with me. And cool to be on this journey together since then. So happy to be here. Yeah. Gosh, you know what that brings up for me? So, So we met while you were working on the Mantle Project, which was just a really wonderful attempt to create space for nuance and complexity in political conversations that are often reduced to sound bites and people kind of throwing stones across the aisle. And you wanted to bring people from both of those sides, create a safe space, or at least an authentic space for stories to be told. Right. And that, that to me, encountering you in that way, I see, I see that theme playing out again and again and again in everything mm-hmm. that you do. But I remember we, we were with one of the storytellers mm-hmm. helping coach her on her story. And there was a moment where she shifted from telling the story that she thought people wanted to hear to really telling her story and telling mm-hmm. her why. And in that moment, everything just shifted 
Mm. She went she went from being two-dimensional and perhaps to seeing us as two-dimensional to all of us being in a, in a shared space together. Mm. And those kind of moments are just so special. So thank mm. you for being someone who's committed to helping everyone see each other and see existence in three dimensions or maybe even more than three <laughs> dimensions as, as we'll get to. That's been really cool. Very welcome. Yeah, I remember that moment clearly, uh, the conference room that we were in and uh, in, in no small part to your expert coaching, uh, we got her there and got her to open up. So um, it was, uh, yeah, really, I agree. It was special. And then when she actually delivered her story, uh, I guess a, a couple weeks later, uh, at least for me, that was one of the most powerful ones uh, that stuck with me. So mm. yeah, mm. super grateful that we got to do that. Nice, man. So flash forward to today, 10 years later, <laughs> you're in LA now. I am living the living the Hollywood dream, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, for if if this video ever sees the light of day, y'all will see that that Nabil is is just a remarkably handsome guy. So he could very well be a film screen actor, although he's not. He's actually asking really big questions about how to live in the world as a creative, as an entrepreneur, and how to help people wrestle with things like what is reality and how do we navigate mm. it and how do we really mm. know who we are and what we're about. Um, so that's, that's like the place I want to start. We maybe will end there, come back around to it. But like most recently you've been asking these really big questions and we've had some fun conversations about literally what is reality mm -hmm. and how can perhaps our better understanding of what it is help us use the phrase solve reality. And I know that mm -hmm. I, I encounter that as kind of a playful phrase but just talk to me more about like, what is solve reality? What's important to you about engaging with these fundamental questions of what it is to be human and what, what the nature of the universe actually is. And how does that, how does that roll back to us as people live in our day-to-day -day lives? Sure. Um, yeah. So I would describe solve reality right now as this kind of, uh, uh, hobby project, uh, that I hope will, turn into something uh, bigger uh, in my lifetime, um, very much aligned with my own personal mission around essentially curiosity. I think um, as I look at my life, I've spent a lot of time being curious about uh, myself and how I work. And so, you know, uh, was really grateful to be linked up with some great mentors and therapists who helped me through, you know, meditation and mindfulness better understand myself. Um, I then, I think, explicitly took some steps towards just better understanding social systems and societies. And so, you know, the mantle work project that we worked on was a lot about that. Like what's actually going on here where uh, that's resulting in this kind of partisanship, or if you might remember the, um, you know, uh, protests, you know, on wall street, uh, and in Greece and, uh, the revolution that happened in my home country of Tunisia, uh, you know, all of these kind of disruptions happening. So, you know, curiosity about, what's happening on a larger human scale. Um, and then I think, you know, partly related to just some personal events uh, in life over the past year, um, I find myself kind of gazing one maybe level up from that, which is, well, what is actually a reality? What is this thing that we all sort of exist uh, within? And so mm -hmm. um, right now, what it looks like is me having uh, and being super grateful to have these amazing conversations with uh, people who are actually exploring this through mainly scientific 
exp uh, research. So talking to theoretical physicists and, um, you know, reaching out to uh, people across the spectrum, whether it's through artificial intelligence or neuroscience and so forth, to get their take on these questions and hopefully building something where we can really accelerate our research and make some cool discoveries into the nature of existence um, that can kind of rock us uh, in the same way that Einstein, uh, Einstein rocked us and mm. uh, Planck rocked us and all of mm. these other kind of great um, scientists rocked us in the past and helped us just better understand the nature of the human experience. Mm. Beautiful. You, in a nice bit of synergy, you actually, you spoke yesterday to the theoretical physicist who consulted with the movie Ant-Man, is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you met with him at the Cahill Center for Astronomy <laughs> and Physics or something like that, right? Across the street from there. That's where I parked my car. And I was like, what is Andy, man? I knew, I knew this guy had, you know, a lot going on. Man, <laughs> Center for Astronomy, too, at Caltech? Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately, I can't take credit for founding a Center for Astronomy, but I love that someone with my namesake has. And, and uh, I want to hear more about that layer. Like, I want to hear more about those conversations that you're having with these, these really cutting-edge thinkers and scientists. But before we go there, I wonder if we could maybe take a moment to stop on each layer of that journey you described for yourself. Sure. You talked first about how you had the good fortune of working with some mentors and therapists and they helped you understand yourself better. Mm. And in whatever way you're comfortable sharing, what started to open up for you when your self-awareness came online in a way that it hadn't before? Like what, what started to shift because you were doing that work? And how did that mm. add value to you or add value to the world that you were living in? Mm. I think one thing that came up for me is this notion that my mentor would say a lot, which is, you are not your patterns. Mm. And recognizing how much of my how much of the decisions and behaviors that I was engaging in in life were the result of kind of this um, patterning that I, you know, stole from my parents, stole from society, stole from media, and kind of enacted uh, somewhat thoughtlessly uh, without really being mindful of how it was serving me or not serving me and how it was serving others or not serving others. So I think the first step was just sort of recognizing that, oh, yeah, like, uh, I'm, I'm doing things without really being conscious of doing them. And let's just notice that and, and see what's going on there. Mm. Um, and that then is like the first sort of like pulling the thread into this really long journey of like then understanding, well, why is it that I have the patterns that I do and how do they serve me and how don't they serve me? And, um, what do I want to do about them? What is it that I want to work on? Mm. And so I think what I hope it's done. Actually, what I know it's done for me is it's helped me do something which I struggled with growing up, which is uh, loving myself, uh, <laughs> like accepting myself for who I am, which is <clears throat> a daily struggle, but um, certainly something I've come a long way with uh, on. Um, accepting others for who they are, accepting that I can't change others, um, which has had a really nice, I think, impact on being more in my body and my skin and just having better relationships with, you know, friends and then especially family, which is the kind of like people say, uh, you know, friends are the family you choose. I also say that like, well, family are the friends that you don't choose, right? <laughs> like you're mm -hmm. kind of stuck with them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so finding ways to just kind of 
become more at peace uh, with with who those folks are and have a better relationship mm. for me has been really meaningful. Mm. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking to a client yesterday, and we arrived at this idea of a clearing, sort of a, a psychic and emotional clearing, where you can accept what is much easier said than done. Where you can accept what is. And from that place of accepting what is, you can move towards a much more peaceful and equanimous approach to other people, to the world around you. Mm. Sort of paradox is you you gain you gain agency by accepting what is. You actually get power and choice once you just say, like, oh, this is a pattern that I keep doing over and over again. Mm. Oh. I'm not this pattern. It's just mm. a pattern of behavior, of neural activity, of habit, whatever that might be, right? Yep. And then you accept yourself for that. You can just look at your neighbor or your friend that you chose or the friend that you didn't choose and say, oh, well, of course, they're just playing out patterns that they've enacted again and again. And I can mm -hmm. accept that that's in them too. Yeah, yeah. And sending love to those people uh, and having empathy for them. Woo! Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's challenging. It's, it's hard work. And, uh, I think one thing I'm so appreciative of is just, you know, how powerful those formative years are and how those experiences, you know, um, create these patterns that we unconsciously or consciously live out for, I think, mm. the rest of our lives, mm. unless we decide to do some work on them. Yeah. But that work is tough. Yes, yes. And it's a work of a lifetime, isn't it? Totally, yeah. Otto Sharmer, who teaches at MIT, and I know that, that folks will have heard in the intro that you, that you were there for a couple of years. Did you ever get to take any of his classes while you were there? I did. I took his class, and I um, actually cool. spoke at his conference, at the Presencing Institute conference. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, so he talks about, we need to, now we definitely need to talk about this. He he calls what you described like a, as downloading the way in which mm. we're always just downloading thoughts, beliefs, behaviors from our past, from our environment, from what we see and hear from others. And, and then, and then moving deeper away from downloading to open your mind and open your heart and ultimately open your will. Like that's mm. that place of choice to new possibility. So, mm -hmm. so tell me more. You, you, you actually spoke at his conference. Is that what you said? Or you? Yeah. So the Presencing, uh, Presencing Institute had their, I think it was called the Global Forum in 2011 or 12. Um, and I just come back from a summer in Tunisia where I was doing some freelance journalism uh, work post uh, the Tunisian revolution, which kicked off the Arab Spring. And so I shared just the story of my experience of, uh, you know, first when the former president, uh, now late president, uh, fled, and then just some of my insights from being on the ground there, you know, in a society that was figuring itself out. Wow. So what I'm struck, what I'm really curious with and struck by is, is like that last phrase you said, a society that's figuring itself out. And I also hear in you, a person who was figuring yourself out. Um, Talk to me in whatever way you're comfortable or, or makes sense to you, how being Tunisian fits into this journey that you've been on. And I really see you as kind of a global citizen. You're someone who has moved through and lived in many cultural contexts. So feel free to bring in that complexity in whatever way 
serves the question, but I just have this sense that you talk about how you're shaped by those formative years. And I'm curious how being connected to Tunisia and the way that that country has been evolving has shaped you and, and what the dialogue is there. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, um, being Tunisian, um, so I you know, left Tunisia when I was about six to come to the U.S. Um, my mother was Polish, so I also had family in Poland, still do. Um, so being of different cultures um, is, uh, and, and what that's given me is an experience that I think is shared with a lot of folks who basically uh, have their, grew up having their feet in different places. I see that in you know, military brats who might have been, you know, born on a military base in Korea or Germany that are, you know, quote unquote, ethnically or just nationally fully American, but yet still had to navigate these different cultures mm. to, you know, kids from the Foreign Service to, you know, folks whose parents might have traveled a lot for work. Um, you know, I think we all shared an experience. And what that experience is, I think, is that very early on, you recognize that, um, you know, absolute truths in one culture um, uh, are not absolute truths in others. <laughs> and mm -hmm. every culture has their own norms and values and ways of seeing the world um, that they can feel very, uh, uh, how would I say, confident in uh, and sometimes even righteous about. Yes. And, you know, I think the gift of, from a very early age, having to navigate these different cultures is that you just are forced to recognize that uh, and it gives you a sense of maybe just kind of humility and understanding that like, huh, uh, different people have different perspectives. Um, you know, I think the downside of that is that you also don't get to have the experience of being fully rooted in one specific culture. And I think the benefits that come from that, you know, like I have never in my life had my family under one roof, <laughs> you know, my mom's family, my dad's family, because that's like geographically, you know, very difficult uh, and super expensive to fly everybody from Poland and Tunisia to some other, you know, undisclosed location to have <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so, but, you know, again, I think the gift that we get is that sort of sense of seeing the other um, and, uh, and, and being able to navigate different cultures. Yeah. Is there a particular story that comes to mind through those formative years where that, that light bulb went off or that it became clear that, oh, this is what this culture believes to be the final say on what it is to be human is actually just a variation on, endless variation on theme. Mm. Go to another culture and see the entirely opposite be just as true for another group of people. Any story that speaks to that? I mean, I think for one, for me, the kind of obvious one has to do with religion. Mm. So, you know, Poland is, I think, 98% Roman Catholic. Mm. Uh, Tunisia, I, I'm assuming, I think, is also like 98% Sunni Muslim. Mm. Uh, and so they're both cultures very rooted in, in their faiths. And, you know, seeing myself, um, you know, when I was born, uh, my, you know, mom and dad had a fight over my name. Uh, well, first they agreed on my name being the Bialagi. Then my father in sort of like his own little, uh, how to say this, like 11th hour move, uh, named me Muhammad in the Bialagi. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, 
adding some Muslim faith to it. Uh, and then my mom, not to be outdone, took us to Poland and then baptized us. So Muhammad ended up getting baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, which, you know, my father wasn't crazy about, obviously. So I think uh, that was one sort of clear way in which it smacked me in the face. I was like, oh, wow, you know, uh, this is real. And each side, quote unquote, has their sense of like what's important. Uh, and they're, they're different, uh, even though they're both coming from people who love me and care for me and uh, I love deeply. Mm. Man, I've never heard that story before. I'm really glad you shared <laughs> that. Do you carry those identities with you somehow today? Have you have you sort of let them be somewhere in your past? Do the do those religions and ethnicities and how how are that how's that show, how's that complexity showing up for you in this moment? Absolutely. Um, I'd say for me, the kind of clearest way it shows up is just an affinity for folks who have the experience of being other. Mm -hmm. um, so even when it comes to people who are born in the US where I live and I call my home, um, who have a, you know, who come from basically a non, you know, white uh, background, you know, let's say that they're Asian American or African American or just kind of other in some way. I feel like there's an instant sort of relatability about mm. what that experience is like. Mm. And, and, and I have an empathy for it. Um, I think that that's one way it clearly shows up. Um, yeah. Besides that, you know, I get really excited when Tunisia plays in the world cup and yeah. I root for them <laughs> and uh, you yeah. know, same thing for Poland and, you know, uh, they actually both have really great, not the greatest soccer teams. I would say actually Tunisia has a great soccer team for being a really small country in Africa. We like punch above our weight but we also just produce great soccer players. So there's mm. the Polish soccer players who play for like the German team and other teams and same thing for Tunisia. So that's pretty great. Love it. Love it. So we're sort of moving from, we've organically moved from the sort of personal layer where you're developing self-awareness and self-love and then realizing that everyone is deserving of that love, even if they're not always giving it to themselves, you're more empathy and we zoom out to sort of social cultural context and you're noticing that people really believe what they believe. And I'm going to, I'm going to name my son this name because it's just, it's part of the lineage he's part of. And I'm going to make sure he gets baptized in this because it's part of the lineage he's part of. And, you know, there's that, that cultural layer. And what I'm, what I'm hearing you tune into is there may be some ways in which you spent time helping trying at least to help people become aware of that cultural layer and mm. perhaps celebrate the lineage they come from without being righteous about it or without being confident that it's the one and only right way to live. Is that right? Um, so I would say that, um, you know, I think my most like kind of uh, the clearest work I did that in that space was the Mantle Project, uh, which, you know, you alluded to earlier, which was this, um, you know, experiment in a way around helping people from quote unquote opposite sides of the political spectrum or just kind of on different sides of polarized, polarizing issues um, to more deeply understand themselves. Uh, the mantle was a metaphor for kind of the, the mantle of the earth. Uh, and so the idea was sort of moving beneath the mantle, kind of digging deeper into what was really happening underneath. Nice. That's so awesome, man. I never knew that. I was always like, oh, like the mantle of a fireplace. People, oh. people gather around the fireside. 
I love it. That's yeah. such a much, but your metaphor is way better than mine. <laughs> yeah. Should have probably had like a logo of like, I don't know, a caterpillar tractor digging into earth or something <laughs> to make that clear. But uh, yeah. Um, but the fireplace analogy works great too. And so, um, you know, there it was less about, I would say celebrating culture, but more about being, you know, firm in your, your, your identity or belief on a certain topic, but also giving people a window into understanding your humanity and who you are as, as a human being. And, you know, having done some story coaching before, uh, one of the participants that I was actually coaching, he told me something which I just thought was really cool. He said, you know, Nabil, I was like, you know, I sense what you're trying to do is kind of get to my own personal story. I was like, yes. Uh, he's like, you know, uh, I think he said his, his mom or somebody, you know, once told me what's most personal is most universal. And I was like, ah, like, that's it. Like, that's really distilling the essence of what I'm going for is helping people to um, understand and sort of kind of surface their own humanity and then create some sort of um, environment um, where they can share that or a container, I think as Otto Trauma talks about, uh, where other people can step into that space and feel, uh, feel safe sort of sharing that with others. And so that was the journey that I was on, um, starting off with folks uh, on uh, the opposite side, quote unquote, of political issues. So uh, reaching out to folks from the Tea Party mm. um, and the Occupy movement, and then mm. eventually uh, leading to an event on the... Uh, gun rights uh, in America and the gun debate. Wow. For those who uh, who it feels like Tea Party and Occupy are already distant memories, but but clearly that some of the forces and ideologies and beliefs underlying both of them are very much alive today. Could you just give us the one-minute distinction of why most people would encounter those as opposing forces or opposite sides of the spectrum? Yeah, um, I, you know, I hesitate to speak on, on their behalf and like what yeah. their ideologies are. Cause I think they, uh, and everybody within speak the, from how you encountered them and what you saw in the possibility of bringing those people into the same space that most people would have assumed was, was lunacy or totally a waste of time. Okay. So yeah, getting into the time machine and going way back to 2012 ish, um, a uh, young man by the name of Barack Obama uh, was running against uh, another man by the name of Mitt Romney uh, for the election. And in that time, a couple of things were happening in America. Uh, the first is that there was the Occupy movement. And so it started off with Occupy Wall Street, um, where a lot of folks just went down to Wall Street, set up shop, set up camp, and sort of were railing against the, the 1%, uh, railing against this idea that our economy is essentially a, a plutocracy, you know, uh, controlled by kind of people with a lot of money um, and kind of squeezing the rest of, you know, quote unquote us uh, from being able to participate and lead, you know, good, wholesome lives with agency. Um, so that was kind of what was happening with the Occupy movement. That then ended up spreading. So there was Occupy Boston. So I went to Sloan at MIT and literally just down the street from us um, in. Um, kind of not too far off in Boston Commons, there was an actual encampment that was there like 24-7 for, yeah. I think, weeks. Um, so hard to miss. Um, 
So that was happening. And actually that movement had been spreading to other parts of the world. I think you saw kind of Occupy inspired movements in Spain and in Greece that was going through an economic crisis and so forth. Um, at the same time, there was this kind of insurgent Tea Party wing, which was essentially trying to displace a lot of the same kind of quote unquote special interests within the Republican Party and trying to give a more, I would say, you know, uh, liberal, um, I, and by liberal, I mean, like, you know, economically liberal, more about kind of independent rights, um, you know, state rights kind of perspective, um, kind of create more of that voice within the GOP and within that, that sort of traditional part of the political spectrum. And so there were a lot of sort of uh, uh, Tea Party folks who are starting to contest uh, Republican folks who are, you know, running for election in Congress, and they were starting to create, you know, a, a group, a cohort within Congress that started to have some political power that was kind of scaring the establishment. Um, so that was happening as well. What you saw, or at least what I saw within the Tea Party was in some fringe examples of it, which I think folks tried to really pin on everybody, and I would say unfairly uh, in the Tea Party, was a sense of a kind of a nationalist or maybe even mm -hmm. a kind of like a racialist, uh, mm. if that's a word, um, theme where, you know, it was anti-immigrant and, um, you know, in some cases even anti-Arab, which, you know, I'm of Arab extraction myself. Um, so that's something that I remember sort of like uh, zinged me when I saw that uh, and I saw some Tea Party folks speaking about that and I was, I was curious to learn more about that. On the flip side, you also had the Occupy movement, which I think prided itself in being super inclusive and all about sort of supporting the rights of immigrants and uh, people and, you know, kind of blue collar jobs and, and, and so forth. And so that seemed to be sort of like they were, you know, again, one tended to be more liberal, kind of more Democrat, more quote unquote, like racially inclusive. The other one seemed to be more aligned with conservative values, more kind of nationalist uh, and uh, yeah, more focused on sort of mm. um, other, I guess, ways of thinking about identity. There's a really important moment. There's something you really important you just said that probably didn't even feel important to you because it's how you're wired. But you noticed the anti-Arab sentiment, at, at least in some factions of the Tea Party at that time in 2012, and you got curious about it. Mm. So you've used the word curiosity a few times. And like, tell me about that move. Is that is that something you have cultivated because of your self-awareness work? Have you always been someone who goes towards that because of the kind of experience you had growing up that you're open to the other more maybe than the average person mm. Talk more about that move um so as i've learned through years of therapy uh you know when you are kind of you know extracted from your natural environment from where you were born which in my case is tunisia and kind of thrown into a totally different one into america uh it's a very disconcerting experience um and, you know, folks react to it in different ways. I think the way that I reacted to it was by sort of hardening up, uh, becoming quieter, doing mm -hmm. a lot of observation, trying to understand kind of what was going on within the system. Um, and um, ultimately kind of like very cautiously moving ahead to make sure that I didn't like step on any landmines, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, while, you know, trying to learn English and dealing with all of the immigrant experience of, you know, your family trying to make some money and get a green card and then eventually become citizens in a country that's, you know, it's a, it's a big deal uh, for, for any family that does that. And so, again, I think one of the gifts of that experience is that 
you know, I became kind of an anthropologist at a very young age. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that were uncomfortable and scary to me, but I kind of had to, you know, at least figure them out enough to be able to be functional uh, in this country. And so um, I think that skill uh, is something that I got early on and stayed with me. And so as an adult, when I noticed kind of similarly interesting, weird things that could be uncomfortable for me happening, uh, I, I felt that I had a capacity and I feel like I have a capacity to kind of inquire about them and uh, not just take them at sort of, what's it called, uh, you know, first blush, if that's the word, at face value, value but to kind yeah. of, yeah, dig beneath the surface. Yeah, yeah. And when you moved towards, as opposed to away, as opposed to putting up guard, you moved towards, what did you learn? I mean, you, you, you implied that actually the, the impression that many people had about the Tea Party is being purely nationalistic and purely, you know, uh, against anti-immigrant. You, you actually discovered that maybe that wasn't totally true. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what I found were human beings, yeah. <laughs> you know, I found yeah. human beings. This is in the greater Boston area who, uh, you know, loved and, and wanted, wanted love and wanted, uh, you know, a lot of the same things that everyone else does um, and were, you know, had their own point of view about how to accomplish that. Um, you know, I remember, you know, going to, actually, I went to a gun show um, and, you know, was talking to some folks at, at a local gun show, some of whom seemed to be, you know, had the kind of don't tread on me sort of, you know, paraphernalia and so forth, which again, is sort of one of the common sort of uh, I would say, m mottos of the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the guys was just like decrying the balkanization of his community. I was like, tell me more about what that means. He's like, you know, I just feel like we're all just siloed into our own tiny little bubbles and not talking with each other. And I don't know mm -hmm. my neighbors. And I feel like, you know, I, uh, I, I hate that. Like, I wish we had more of kind of a shared identity and national identity again so that we, we could all become one again. And I was like, you know, I think what you're speaking to is kind of people reaching across sort of, uh, you know, boundaries and getting to know each other. It's like, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people on the other side that would agree with you as well. Like they, they also mm. have a sense of community and they also have that yearning. And so I think, uh, I, I found things that I personally related to, uh, and that I heard echoed in kind of others parts of the political spectrum, if that's what you want to call it. Um, I found personally, a sense of acceptance, you know, nobody yelled at me or called me out, you know, they were grateful that I was there and uh, interested in kind of getting to know why I was interested in them. And then I think the biggest thing that, you know, to this day, I'm just so incredibly grateful for is, you know, I invited a group of strangers from this, this tea party, I was not a member of the organization, to work with me, like, open themselves up, uh, and tell me about some like deeply personal stories that helped shape their identity. And then share those publicly on stage in front of a group of strangers, a lot of whom were not part of their party, that were, you know, from just the greater Boston area, which Boston tends to be a lot more liberal. And they took me up on it, and they did it. Uh, and, like, I don't know if I would do it if somebody came up and asked me that. <laughs> like, that's really scary. Um, yeah. And so, wow. again, I found, you know, human beings with a yearning for, um, you know, a lot of the same human feelings that a lot of us yearn for uh, and that we're willing to trust a complete stranger to do this kind of experiment. So mm. um, yeah, super grateful for the experience. What I'm hearing in this story is the move towards curiosity yet again helps 
bring dimensionality to other people. It's like the move towards self-acceptance that you talked about and self-love then lets you accept and love other people. And then the move towards really knowing about other people lets you see that they have the same needs that you have. Mm. So you're starting to encounter fully fleshed out human beings as opposed to kind of the cardboard cutout version. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, so now you're at this third layer, right? You're starting to really interrogate reality. You're talking to scientists, to physicists, to, uh, you know, quantum computation experts, the whole kit and caboodle in this really cutting edge space. And, and of course, there are entrepreneurial opportunities in that space. And there are lots of people, some of them very large, like Google and, and their parent company, Alphabet, who want to make a lot of money off this. But, and maybe that's fine. That's another conversation we can have. But you're really curious about some of the philosophical and ethical implications, at least as I've understood it so far. And I don't know, I'm just sensing that there's a connection there. Like, you're curious about yourself, you get curious about your neighbor, you get curious about the stranger, you get curious about the actual world and universe we live in. What, what's starting to open up for you as you, as you keep peeling back the layers of these onions and going mm. deeper into these questions? Mm. Um. Well, one, one clear connection that I can make, um, which, uh, so there's a, a, a moral uh, psychologist named Jonathan Haidt um, who wrote The Righteous Mind and uh, is currently at NYU. And he was a great and is a great thinker about, for example, polarization and how you get sort of opposite sides to talk to each other and, and, and build mm. relationship. And you know, one of his like solutions or proposals for bridging that difference is identifying, you know, in his case, he talked about bigger threats. Um, so he's like, you know, if a comet was suddenly hurtling towards the earth, uh, very quickly, we would forget about whether a Republican or Democrat, or maybe even American or Chinese, because we're all on the same boat together. And we would very quickly start collaborating and figuring out how do we, you know, uh, avoid an apocalyptic death, right, from, uh, from this meteor hurtling our way. And so he then described, you know, what are some other sort of like existential crises that can help us get to that space mm. as, as a society and as individuals? Mm. And so climate change is an obvious one. Um, uh, I think, you know, in America, I think the other example he gave was around uh, uh, just gun deaths in general um, mm. and also... Um, I think you just talked about like incarceration, uh, the deficit, you know, things that tend to affect a lot of us. Mm. Um, I think in that same way, uh, you know, putting an, a human being on the moon uh, or, you know, Einstein discovering, you know, the theory of relativity, um, you know, those moments uh, and those insights or accomplishments uh, like intrinsically affect each and every one of us on a very fundamental basis um, in a way that I think reminds us of our shared humanity. And so one hope that I have in, and maybe one connection that I have to your question about this work is that in uncovering some of these insights about the fundamental nature of reality, we can fundamentally shift our perspective on some of these bigger questions of what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a human mm. in ways that 
I think will lead into uncharted territory and who knows what those discoveries will be and where it will lead us to. But I think one thing I'm certain of is that it'll remind us of the fact that we're all in this, in this together, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. I'm struck with your reframe. You're saying, no, I don't want to look at the threats. I'm open to the possibility that the, ter- the territory is uncharted and we may encounter things that are scary, but, I, but I'm curious in, the insights that will shift how we understand ourselves and reality, hopefully for the better. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, um, well, I don't know what, what, what would constitute a threat necessarily. I mean, I think whatever we discover about the nature of reality in the universe, you know, has been going on for some time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, um, whatever we discover, that's, it, it's been that way. We've just finally, we're trying to get closer to the truth of it than perhaps we ever have before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I think, you know, curiosity is very deeply embedded into our DNA as human beings. I think it's the reason that why we're, you know, explorers and constantly pushing the boundaries and, um, I think very fundamental. And so, uh, I think this is just another version of that that same journey. Mm, mm. What's it called? Um, is it like the overview effect that astronauts talk about when they see the mm. planet from the first time from from space or from the mm. moon? Yeah, just I don't like, know what the name is, but I've heard. Um, I think he was actually a space tourist uh, who went up and like talked about how that impacted his view of climate change uh, because he was like, wow, looking from the space shuttle, you actually, like one thing I didn't really realize until I was up there is that you can't see the boundaries between countries. (laughs) We're so used to looking at maps where those are delineated. And he's like, I couldn't tell where countries start and stop. And again, a great reminder of the fact that like, oh yeah, we're all just these little species on this little rock uh, that's very self-contained with no sort of exit or no no safety valve attached to it, right? We kind of have... Right. There's no like escape hatch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. People, I mean, I'm excited that there are big thinkers, ambitious thinkers who are thinking about things like how do we live on Mars, but let's figure out how we live on planet earth <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because yeah. Mars is a hell of a lot scarier, a hell of a lot harsher environment than planet earth is. Mm. And, and of course, if we figure out how to terraform a place like Mars, that technology could pay huge dividends here on planet Earth, right? That yep. it will force us to come up with solutions to problems we, we currently don't have to face in a day-to-day way, which is very, yep. very cool. Yeah, I guess what I was tuning into, I was sort of hearing an overview effect, like whatever that is seeing a planet effect in what you're describing. Mm. In the same way that you're getting a depth in relation to others as you see them in, in a fully more like full light and a more expansive light, what might happen for us if we start to get tuned into really fundamental questions about the nature of reality? It's very cool, man. Oh, I had a, I had a question. I want to just see it because it felt like an important one. Let's see if I can, I can pull it back from the ether of my memory here. Oh, yeah. So you've actually talked to, you've begun talking to physicists and you're like, you're having these conversations. And I know there's a lot of 
questions that you have as a layman who's not an, a physicist, who's not a trained physicist, for instance. So that's just sort of like your learning edge is a lot like a lot of ours, right? You're, you're now probably further along because you're asking questions that most of our, us aren't asking. But given that, given that there's lots more that you just have to learn, what are some of, what are some of the emergent possibilities or insights or new questions that are coming up for you as you start to kind of poke in these places and try and understand reality in the same way that you've done for yourself and for communities that most of us don't turn towards curiosity. Like we kind mm. of tend to not turn towards curiosity. You just keep turning towards curiosity. And what's opening up in this, this big metal layer that you're playing? Mm. Yeah. Um, so lots of things. I think one is um, an appreciation for the work that physicists and scientists do mm. in unraveling the nature of existence. Um, I didn't really appreciate how close some of the work that a theoretical physicist does uh, is to the work of, you know, uh, a philosopher or somebody who is, you know, studying religion, a uh, religious scholar. Uh, they're asking a lot of the same questions, just kind of approaching it with, diff with, with a different toolkit. Um, and so I was like, man, you guys are badass. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, using, using real mathematical, like real scientific skills to answer kind of very deep philosophical questions, I thought. That was great, and it made me wish that I had, you know, uh, done better in math in high school <laughs> and was more math-minded. Uh, and it actually makes me curious to dive in more into, into math and physics uh, as best I can. Um, so that was one. Um, you know, a second is one of, uh, you know, my, my hopes is to make, is to really thinking innovatively, uh, really accelerate our, our research and our, our discovery of some fundamental truths about reality and existence in ways that are on like the, you know, the span of a, of a, of a human lifetime. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's making me appreciate kind of like, no duh, that this is, you know, an all hands on deck effort and it's going to require a lot of different skills. And so, you know, it's one thing to, I think, be uh, an Einstein and a, a brilliant physicist who can, you know, sit in a Swiss patent office and, you know, un unravel the nature of the universe through, through math. Um, but I think uh, there are only so many people who can do that. Uh, and ultimately, in order even to sustain that in the long term and maybe to accelerate it, uh, it's going to require organizations and systems and fundraising and HR and legal. And, uh, uh, and it reminded me of a quote from uh, Yuval Noah Hariri, the guy who wrote Sapiens, yeah. who yeah. was speaking. I was actually watching him speak on YouTube um, at a gay pride event in Israel. And he was saying, you know, if I have, you know, one piece of advice to everybody here, if you want to participate, it's to find somebody else to work with uh, and, and join, join kind of arms with, because 50 people uh, working together is like magnitudes more impactful than 50 people working alone. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I think the third thing that's come up for me is you know, one of the questions I've been starting off with, with all of these physicists is, you know, if you had 10 years, so we just, you know, became, it just became 2020. If by 2030, you wanted to uh, unravel 
uh, and discover all of what's yet undiscovered when it comes to understanding the universe, reality, and consciousness. Uh, how would you go about it? You know, what team would you build or what technique would you use or what technology would you be focused on or so forth? And I think one thing I've been struck by is just the variety of the answers. Uh, there's definitely no one answer. And I feel like everyone's given me a different one, which wow. is both, uh, yeah, interesting, exciting, confusing. <laughs> but that's, that's where I'm at. Your uh, Yuval Noah Harari's advice made me think of the, the old saw, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. And, and I get the sense that you're someone who's really committed to helping us go far. I wonder, like this question just emerging for me, so I don't even quite know how to put it into words. Give me a second. What I hear you saying is we can't sit and wait for those of us who have the particular mind suited for the deep thinking that someone like Einstein was suited for to do all the work for us. What I hear you saying is that we need collective effort to both understand and then decide what to do with that understanding in a way that serves us as a species. And what I'm noticing from the course of this conversation that I think is really special about you is you are someone who's been, been asking and answering that question again and again and again. How can I better understand what I have to offer, what they have to offer, what we have to offer in all of these different contexts? So I almost want to put the question to you. Again, I recognize that you're not a theoretical physicist. <laughs> but if you were to put together a crack shot team of 50 human beings who are really going to go after this question and money was no obstacle or, or whatever, or maybe money was an obstacle. Sometimes creativity needs constraints, but like you need to get some minds in the room. Where would you start? Mm. Um, I'd start with identifying what are the, kind of key fundamental questions that we need to answer before we answer the other ones. <laughs> and uh, so first prioritizing what those questions are. Then I would identify who's doing the most interesting work in those areas. And so, you know, there's already a lot of labs out there, you know, CERN in Switzerland, the high particle accelerator, multi-billion dollar project with a lot of nations working on them. You know, if there's a specific team, uh, you know, within that that's answering this specific question, you know, finding out how can I be of service to this team? How can we be of service to this team? Whether it's through giving them financial resources or, you know, extra brain power from this team of 50 uh, or, or, you know, creating conferences for folks to be able to share findings and research and, and be able to collaborate more quickly. Um, I think so. One approach is, yeah. First, identifying the, the, the key problems to solve for, then identifying who's doing the best work and then um, uh, supporting them. I think whether in parallel or after a couple of years of trying that, I think the other sort of possibility is, uh, I was just reading, just finished uh, Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, a book mm -hmm. about the future of artificial intelligence. Uh, and he writes about strong AI or what he calls artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. And... Again, in my sort of layman's understanding, the difference between AI, 
as we have it today in AGI is that our current version of AI is superhuman in solving very narrowly defined problems. So we can have it you know, very narrowly uh, solve how to play chess better uh, or you know, how to you know, identify some patterns within a large set of data. Uh, but often it requires a lot of training and a lot of training data fed into it in order for it to be able to do the work that we want it to do. Uh, ultimately, as human beings, one of the things that we have is that from very little training uh, and uh, kind of some abstract notions of how something works, we can actually act and make decisions and come to some solutions. Uh, if I've given you, if I kind of teach you how to swing with a baseball bat, um, you know, uh, and then I hand you a golf club, even though you've never maybe touched a golf club before, you, you probably are going to somewhat understand the mechanics of swinging in that golf club because you've swung something similar. Mm. Um, mm. So AGI is kind of our attempt to create artificial intelligence that's able to, with very little data, kind of abstract notions of how things work, still be effective in the same way that humans are. Uh, what's exciting about AGI and also super freaking scary. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it definitely needs a lot of uh, supervision and control, I think, and how it's developed. But what's exciting is that you could potentially feed it some of these abstract notions that we have around how do, uh, you know, how does the universe work? Uh, what's actually happening with dark energy and dark matter, which we know exists, but we're having a lot of trouble detecting. Um, you know, particle physics talks about, or string theory talks about there being 10 or 11 dimensions of reality. You know, mm -hmm. if we were able to feed it that kind of information, in theory, a powerful enough AGI could help us make sense of it in the same way that our greatest minds have helped us make sense of these things, and, you know, our history as a species. And so um, I think another kind of parallel or, you know, subsequent approach is to double down on efforts to create that kind of technology and then aim it at some of these scientific questions. Mm. Beautiful. So there's this opportunity to essentially create what Bostrom calls a super intelligence that can, that we can point towards really sticky questions about the fundamental nature of reality that then might give us insight about where, where we go next. Absolutely. And it's already happening, I mean, from an AI perspective, it's already happening. Uh, so there's some great experiments. Um, Max Tegmark at MIT has developed a model where they're, you know, ingesting a lot of information about, uh, kind of, again, how the universe works and using pattern recognition and machine learning to come up with some kind of insights. Uh, and I feel like now that I'm sort of tuning into this space, every couple of weeks, I hear an article or I see an article about some team that's creating what I call like an AI physicist uh, in, in one way or the other. Um, so I think we're already down that path, um, but I think there's also still a long ways to go. Yeah. So as we come down the close of this conversation, I want us to orient towards the distinction you gave us earlier. I can't remember the name of the thinker. He's from NYU who... Oh, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Haidt. Yep. Jonathan Haidt. And, and his book is Righteous... The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Mind. Okay. So I'm going to make sure to capture that um, in the show notes to share with people. But, but you tuned into like his invitation was, let's find, let's find the meteor coming from, from outer space to unite us. And, 
And you're flipping the script a bit. Like, let's find get it, let's find the equivalent of getting a person on the moon to unite us right now. What are some of the moonshots that you're that you're starting to get excited about? I mean, is it interplanetary travel? Is it is it uh, fusion energy with uh, like unlimited? Like, what is what becomes possible for us as a society, as a civilization, if we start to crack some of these nuts? Mm-hmm. That might really begin to unite us uh, in places where we're currently divided. Mm. Well, one is I'll say that you know technology is a tool. And a tool can be used, you know, to build a house just as it can to be to destroy one. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I hesitate to say, well, gosh, if we were able to develop quantum computing, which I think is a really interesting technology, suddenly that's like a panacea and all of our problems will be solved and humanity will, you know, never have to suffer again. Because that technology can be used just as easily to serve, you know, better targeted and more pernicious like YouTube ads, <laughs> you know, for a specific, I don't know, product that we don't need or a political campaign or somebody who's trying to divide us. Um, and so, um, but I am excited about, I think, the potential for these technologies to do good. And so to your question, artificial general intelligence is definitely one of them. Quantum computing, I think of them as kind of the brain and the brawn. So AGI is helping us better problem solve. Quantum computing is able to help us do that with much larger data sets than we're currently capable of, even with our biggest supercomputers. Um, you know, combined, that would be incredibly powerful in helping us to, again, whether it's modeling better pharmaceuticals or treatment for, we were talking, um, I know before the show about coronavirus, which is happening right now, you know, better treatments for that. Um, there's a myriad of ways you can apply those technologies for good. Mm. Mm. Um, I also think it's cool that there are um, some organizations and some people who are starting to be very mindful about how do we use this technology in a way that like safeguards us as a species and is used for good versus for things that, you know, take us a step back. And so Nick Bostrom is one of those folks who I mentioned. Um, There is, I think it's called the Humane Technology Institute. There's this guy, Tristan Harris, uh, who... Um, actually has a great conversation with Yuval Noah Hariri and the editor of Wired Magazine. Definitely recommend checking that out. Um, So, you know, creating organizations that seemingly are pretty well-funded and are getting a lot of traction to help us navigate this new path in a way that, um, you know, results in the best outcome uh, for us as a species. Mm. Mm. Nabil, this has been such a wild ride to the layers of existence here from the self to the us to the universe. And it is a real treat to count you among my friends and to count you as someone who inspires me constantly with your wide-ranging, open-minded curiosity. My, My fierce hope for humanity is that more of us can learn how to move like you move through the world and really appreciate you taking the time and i want to give you the space to say like what's your last word on our conversation today if you could say anything else to to our audience to anyone who's listening in about all this territory we covered what's what for you is the most powerful or exciting or interesting takeaway or question that you'd like to leave us with Hmm. wow um I think I would go back to this question of what's most personal is most universal. Mm. So, um, mm. you know, 
taking uh, 15 minutes this weekend to kind of sit down or even five and just uh, be aware of what's going on within our bodies, I think um, can be a very uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> but also potentially really fun uh, and powerful experience. If that's something that's new to you, um, I definitely recommend it. Um, and otherwise just, you know, uh, thank you uh, for asking the great questions that you do and holding this space uh, for both of us. And I'm really excited to see um, your own path continue to blossom and uh, who else joins me on this uh, awesome new podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're, you're in good company, man. There's a lot of great guests uh, who have connected with and who are lined up. So, but you, you're, you hold your own in this space. So thank you for being here. I can't wait to share this with the world for people to hear it. And let's keep talking. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Nabil, for being here. I hope you take him up on his invitation to take five minutes to be with yourself and see what you can learn. And then maybe to, to take that one step further and see how you can apply that self-awareness to awareness of others, of your friends, your family, your community, the world, wherever, whatever layer you want to carve into and dive into. The curiosity that Nabil has shared with us is a real gift. So I hope that use is useful to all of you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you're interested in learning more about my coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, sign up for my newsletter in the link below. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.